Natalie, could I have the microphone? Um, good morning, everybody. Just before we look at what God's Word has to say today, we recognize that today it's kind of a special day. It's Mother's Day. And that mothering, that lovely gift of mothering, goes beyond the physical act at times of just being a mum in that way. And we wanted to recognize that actually the whole nurturing and caring side of mothering that many, many others do. And so I would love to invite um, Karen up to just tell us a wee bit about herself and um, how she very much is part of that whole role in the wider sense in society. So uh, Karen, thank you for joining us today. Would you just tell us very briefly what you do? Yeah, sure. So I am a paediatrician. Um, I, that, if you aren't sure, is a hospital doctor for, um, for kids. Uh, I work in the neonatal unit in the Royal. Um, so again, if you don't know, the neonatal unit's for where um, babies that are born a bit too early or with complications from delivery um, are looked after. So we do lots of stuff for them. Um, we keep them warm. We feed them via tubes um, just to get them up to where they would be with their normal gestation. Karen, thank you. Um, can I just ask you, did you, did you have a sense of, of call to be a doctor to do the kind of job that you're doing? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, although growing up, I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut, so that didn't work out. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, I definitely didn't want to be a doctor. I spent a lot of time in hospital as a child, so I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a nurse. I didn't even want to be the receptionist that worked in the hospital. Um, but I grew up in church, so I always sort of felt the presence of God. Um, but I didn't really realize that you had, could have a personal relationship with Jesus until I was about 14. Um, and about that time, um, I, I committed my life to the Lord. And, um, and I really felt then he kind of, um, he changed my heart completely. Um, and I suddenly, all I wanted to be was a doctor. Um, I didn't want to do it. I couldn't think of anything else. Couldn't think of anything else to put my UCAS form. Um, so, and I really do feel like he has guided my steps since then. Um, but it's very much, it's a vocation, definitely. I feel definitely called to it. But um, it's not my identity. So my identity is very much in Christ. So I think if, if tomorrow God was to say, actually, do you know what? I don't want you to be a doctor anymore. Um, I really, I would hope and pray that I would have the faith to say, well, okay then, what's, what's next? Um, so. Wow, that's amazing, Karen. And Karen, does your faith help you with the work that you do? Um, yes, I think many people would be shocked to hear how much I pray in a day. Um, I'm maybe a little bit unnerved. Um, but yeah, I think definitely... Um, at the minute, I feel very challenged in terms of my attitude to work. Um, the Bible says that we are to work as if we're working for God um, and that we are to be the aroma of Christ. And I, I don't know about you in your workplace, but I don't always, always feel that I smell that good in terms of aroma of Christ. Um, and I know that my work colleagues see me at um, some of my worst times. Uh, they see me at my most tired, at my most stressed. Um, and I have to wonder then, am I showing Christ to them? Um, but I think wonderfully God has given us the, the tools to equip us for that time, and I think that you, you start to smell like Jesus when you spend time with Jesus. Um, so I think by, by reading his word, by spending time with other believers, by praying, um, then, then when we're at our weakest, then his strength really, really comes through. Karen, thank you. Is it okay if I just pray for you before we, we, we go into the word? Um, God, thank you so much for Karen, and thank you, God, for all that she does um, in our wider society, Lord, for that um, act of, of nurturing and care and life-giving that she does. Lord, would you just grace her and empower her for the job that she does. Um, and Lord, would you pour out your blessing on her in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Karen. That. 
Okay, this is the last in our series on the book of Ruth. And today we're looking at chapter four and in particularly the blessing, which we can read in verses 11 and 12. But just in case you have missed the last three weeks, we're gonna do a very quick whistle-top tour of the book of Ruth so far. So here goes a brief summary of Ruth so far. And those of you who have been here the last few weeks, you'll, you'll know this really well by now, hopefully. But Ruth was written in the same time period as the book of Judges, just over a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth. And it was a difficult time. Uh, you know, the people of God at that time weren't doing so well. They, they were doing a lot of things the way that they felt uh, they should be done. And they were kind of living in a time when it was very difficult. Um, and they, they were lacking something of the, the presence of God with them at various times. But the book of Ruth introduces us specifically to a Jewish family living in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem has struck the area including, or famine has struck the area including Bethlehem. And the irony being there, Bethlehem actually means house of bread. But now there's no food, literally, in the house of bread. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi move east to Moab with her two sons, Malon and Killian. And they resettle and they live there for probably about 10 years. Malon and Killian, the two sons, marry local women, Orpah and Ruth. And we're told, unfortunately, that over time, Malon, Killian and Elimelech himself die. And that leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, widows. So they would have been grieving and also at that time having no meals to provide for them in a very vulnerable situation. So Naomi decides to move back to Bethlehem. She's gone back to the house of bread. And Ruth and Orpah decide to go with her. So they head off. It would be about 30 miles, just over 30 miles between um, Moab and Bethlehem. So probably Belfast to Newcastle and a little bit further on foot. But as they go, Naomi pleads with her two daughters-in-law to stay behind in Moab, in their native land. On one level, that's incredibly self unselfish of her to do that because her daughters-in-law would have more opportunity there to remarry amongst their own people. But you know, in a way also, they would also be encouraged to go back to a land where Yahweh, Naomi's God, was not worshipped. And they would have to return to a land of foreign gods and traditions. They wouldn't be going back to worship the one true God that they must have seen something off through Naomi. Naomi does manage to persuade Orpah to stay in Moab, but Ruth pledges loyalty to Naomi and to Yahweh, to the God of the Bible, to Naomi's God. So Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem. And resettlement's a bit difficult because Naomi's remembered there, but her present bitterness would be very obvious to the people and the fact that they're not in great shape when they come back. And then Ruth is a foreigner in a strange land, and that's never easy. 
Historically, Moab was an enemy of Israel, so Ruth could have been in real danger. Little hope of acceptance, possibly. She was an outsider in Bethlehem. But Ruth decides to go and glean leftover grain in the barley fields so that she and Naomi have food. When there's not much hope left, God reveals a bit more of his plan. Because as it happens, Ruth has been working in a field belonging to a man called Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi, of her late husband, Elimelech. And therefore, Boaz would have the right, he would be able to buy back land from Naomi and to marry and provide for Ruth. You see, in Israel's history, God made provision for all sorts of situations. And God actually intended land originally in that time to stay within family. So every 50 years or so, even if land had been sold on, it had to be returned to the original owner, to the original family, often at a loss to the purchaser. The land could be bought back by a kinsman redeemer, a family member who could restore for others in the family the things that had been lost. Now, we heard last week, George told us in detail how Nomi comes up with a plan. And in a nutshell, Ruth tells Boaz that she's related to, the, to, to his relative, to Naomi. And last week we heard how Ruth was able to present to Boaz that he might become the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz seems quite willing to do that. But there's a twist in the tale. Just as things are looking up, Boaz reveals that there's another relative with even closer ties than himself. And that that relative would first claim to buy the land and then to marry Ruth. And our reading today in chapter 4 opens with Boaz and the other relative discussing the situation at the town gate in the presence of 10 elders. Now these elders of the town, these well-respected men, they were to be the witnesses to any transaction that might happen. You see, in everyday transactions in those days, two or three witnesses would have been enough. But for important circumstances, it was Jewish practice to have 10 people there. So this was serious stuff. And there's drama afoot. Boaz explains the situation about Naomi and the land. And in verse four, the other relative says, I will redeem. And he agrees to buy back the land. Now, this is not what we're hoping for because the story has been pointing to and building up to the fact that there could well be a happy ending between Boaz marrying Ruth and also restoration for Naomi, but it's not looking good here because the one with the prior claim is saying, I'll buy back the land. Thankfully, when Boaz goes on to explain in verse five that if the other relative does that, he also acquires Ruth as a wife and this changes everything. The other kinsman, the other relative refuses redemption. 
in case he and Ruth would marry and maybe have a son. Because you see, that son would then inherit from him, but not bear his name. He would still keep the name of that of Malon, Ruth's late husband. So the other relative was actually afraid of lessening himself and spoiling his legacy. What irony. Because the legacy of Boaz and Ruth continues even to this day. But we'll hear nothing more of the other relative. Continuing on in the story, there's a bit of a strange bit in verse 7, where we're told that the other relative takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. Now, what is that about? What sort of way is that to do a legal transaction? I was thinking about this and I was thinking, what happened next? Now, I, I tried to do some research and I don't know what they did. Did they have a big box for spare sandals or something? I don't know what that was like. Or did you just wear your old sandals so that it didn't matter if you gave one of those away? And how did you get home? You know, with one sandal on and one sandal off. I remember years ago, I was working in Amsterdam for a while. And uh, one Sunday morning, I decided to go outside of like, like the normal zone and I traveled across the city and find a little Anglican church there just to see what it was like. And on the way back, I didn't know the city, so I got lost, and I got off at the wrong tram stop. When I was wearing shoes that weren't very comfortable. You know, when you get a bit older, it's all about the comfort. You don't care what they look like, as long as your feet are, are comfortable, you don't mind. But when you're a bit younger, you know, you go for a bit more style. Well, I couldn't walk in the shoes, it was terrible, and I could feel my feet blistering as I went. And I remember actually getting to the point where I didn't even care, I just took my shoes off, and I walked back, to the rehab where I was working carrying the shoes um, and uh, covered in blisters. And you know, in Amsterdam, that's not really that odd. That's, that, in fact, that's not too bad at all in Amsterdam. So it didn't look too bad. But I was thinking, what was that like? What did they do? And then um, when I did a wee bit of research, I realized that in that culture, you know, shoes and feet are very important in Jewish culture, even to today. And it is really just a way of making a formal transaction or a legal act, whereas today we would be signing contracts and shaking hands and all sorts of things like that. That's what that was about. But when he did that, when he took his sandal off, he was saying that he was giving up his rights to his claim on the land. It was a binding agreement demonstrated, just like our signing a contract in a legal way. So, Boaz gets the land, and more importantly, he gets to marry Ruth. And he appeals twice to the elders to be witnesses to this. And there is the most wonderful thing that happens. There is blessing pronounced by the elders of the town. Blessing's not a word that we use very often outside of church. And even in church, we don't use it an awful lot. But blessing, especially in Old Testament times, was the most wonderful way of speaking out and directing the goodness of God to another person. It's a powerful way to create the expectation of the goodness and faithfulness of God in others' lives. And this is the blessing that the elders speak towards Ruth. They say of Ruth, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Now, at first glance, that's an interesting one because if you know the story of Rachel and Leah and you can read about it in Genesis 29 to 31, it's the story of two sisters. And it's not 
all sweetness and light. It's two sisters and one shared husband, and what a triangle that plays out to be. It's a story of competition and scheming and terrible sibling rivalry. But years later, their 12 sons become the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel and the means by which God establishes a nation. Is your family situation a mess today? What's going on in your family? You see, when God is at work, even in the midst of really difficult family situations, what's wrong can be worked out and be made right. And even when we think we're acting outside of the sovereignty of God, he is still at work. God worked in these two, Rachel and Leah, in in the midst of all the competition and the unkindness. And he worked to create and establish a people for himself that in time to bring a Messiah, a Savior in Jesus Christ, and ultimately to redeem us and to buy us back. You see, redemption can only happen when what you're redeeming was yours in the first place. God's heart has always been that every single person on the planet throughout the history of time belongs to him. The story of Ruth points us forward to David and David points us forward to Jesus. You see, the blessing conferred to Ruth is about legacy. God blesses Ruth and Boaz with a baby boy called Obed and Obed becomes the father of Jesse and Jesse becomes the father of David, the king, the man after God's own heart and from whom the genealogy of Jesus himself can be traced. But there's also blessing for Boaz in terms of provision and in being remembered for his part in the story, in this amazing story of redemption. I was in Bethlehem last year, and I don't know if for any of you have been there, it's a wild place. It's not what I imagined. But you can go today and still see the fields that belong to Boaz. 3,000 years later, he is honored and remembered. And there's a blessing of restoration for Naomi. See, the story begins with her great loss, but it ends with her great gain. Loss is so very painful. And for Naomi, she'd had repeated losses through time. So maybe even more so. But look what God did for her. And if he can restore the loss in Naomi's life, what can he do for us? Verse 12 goes on to refer to Perez, one of the ancestors of the tribe of Judah from which Jesus is descended. First Chronicles 2, we read that Boaz was a descendant of Perez. And the blessing received that day was fully realized in time with Tamar the prostitute and Ruth the Moabite, unlikely as they were, both mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. You see, God can take and use the most unlikely and the most disqualified and work this into a legacy of great blessing for others. You see, from the beginning of time as we know it, 
God knew. God knew he planned Ruth and Boaz together. He knew Bethlehem where Jesus was one day going to be born. God knows. And today it's Mother's Day. But predating what we have come to know as Mother's Day is this lovely Sunday in our church calendar called Mothering Sunday. It was originally a day in church life when people would visit the church that they had a link with or they had grown up with or their, their family had kind of come from. And in the Downton Abbey kind of days, you were allowed the day off to go home to your mother church. That's what it was originally about. We've kind of blended two things together. And on the way back home, you would have gathered little bunches of flowers from along the way and given them to your mother or to some other special lady in your family. And it might be that it's no accident today that on Mother's Day, some of you are here in this church. Maybe some of you have come home to a place that you were associated with or that you knew years back or that your family has links with. Maybe, like Naomi, you need to come home to this place and stay and settle here. Or maybe like Ruth, you never had that place. You need to find a, a place to, to root down and resettle now. Could it be that you need to find your home here with us and in God himself who's home to us? You see, he's where we were made to be. He's what we were made for. And when we're at home with him, we're safe. And it makes all the difference to our day to day, as well as what's to come into the future. And maybe today, you really love God, but you're in the most difficult situation. And you've little hope maybe of things getting any better. I want to encourage you today that our God God of Naomi and Ruth, our God, he can take bitter things and turn them into the sweet, just like he did for Naomi and Ruth. Because you see, in all the setbacks, God is still planning for your good and he is still outworking his plans and his purposes for your life. So whether life seems good or bad right now, if you know about Jesus, but you don't actually know him in a personal real way, then can I assure you that he would love to come close to you today? And he would love to step into your story as your redeemer. And he will rescue you and claim you for his own. And you will become part of his big, big, bigger story if you'll ask him. You see the story of Ruth, it's a love story. But from a biblical perspective, love looks like Jesus dying on a cross for you and for me to buy us back so that we can be close to him. That was always the original plan. See, Ruth's blessing, yes, it's to have a legacy and very much important and significant 
to be part of the bloodline from which the Messiah, from which Jesus comes. So even as she blesses Naomi and Boaz and the Lord himself with her devotion and her faithfulness, all of this, every shred of her ability to bless those around her is only because she herself has been blessed. Because she's been redeemed, she is a blessing to others. And the whole way through the Bible, from the Old Testament right through to the New, that's the theme. From Genesis 6, where God calls Abraham and says, I have blessed you so that you will be a blessing. It's a repetitive theme that carries on the whole way through. I'm just going to finish there. 